talking, and this is the third episode of This is the Revolution. So thank you all for sticking with this show. I love you, most of you. You know, I don't like mainly cops, but also, I don't know. There's some people who listen to the show. I'm like, eh, meh. I'm just kidding. That's extremely rude. Uh, y'all are all dope, most likely. Um, yeah, the show's going pretty well so far. I appreciate all the feedback, all the love I've gotten. Appreciate a, my friends, my family members, my Demorites, my comrades, people from the Momentum community, people from Philly Socialists. Um, yeah, just tons of people. I have a lot of love for y'all for checking out the show. And hopefully there's a bunch of people who are listening right now who are like, who are those people he just mentioned? Why didn't he mention me? I know he doesn't know me, but still, that would be kind of dope. So yeah, I apologize to you, I guess. But yeah, so let's just get this started. So this episode is about Hey Arnold, which if you know me, is literally one of my favorite shows of all time. I say that every episode. Uh, but I genuinely love this show to death. Arnold is who I wanted to be when I was a kid. And, you know, Gerald, too, because he's black and really cool. And for folks who don't know what the show is, I'll get into that in a second. But first, yeah, hey, Arnold, I love this show. It's amazing. Love Arnold. His name is Arnold Shortman, by the way. It's revealed in the movie, the second movie that no one really watched because it came out at a weird time. But yeah, Hey Arnold is definitely just one of the greatest pieces of cartoons that exists on the planet, on Earth, in the universe, in the galaxy. I guess the galaxy is within the universe. So I said that backwards, but you get the point. So Hey Arnold is a Nickelodeon cartoon. It premiered in 1996, created by Craig Bartlett who first created this uh, the show as a series of shorts for Harriet the Spy, another great show, which hopefully I'll get into one day. Uh, Craig Bartlett worked on the first few episodes of Rugrats and directed some episodes of Ren and Stimpy. He's also the brother-in-law of Matt Groening, the creator of The Simpsons of Futurama, which is kind of weird. But it's a, it's a true fact. You can look it up. I swear to God, I don't lie on this show. Not often anyway. Once in a while. Because it's funny. But yeah. He's a dope guy, Craig Bartlett, I think. I don't know. Yeah, once again, I really don't know these people. But he's done a lot of cool shit. So the show takes place in a city slightly based on Seattle or Portland-ish. A little bit of Brooklyn. But I think about it as uh, some combo of Seattle and Portland. Which explains why there's very few black people in the grand scheme of the show. There are quite a few black characters. But in the grand scheme of a show about a working class Neighborhood in a city. Not a lot of black people. I'm saying. So the show follows a small group of kids. Um, like a lot of these shows. Well, it mainly just follows Arnold, actually, as he uh, navigates what it means to be a kid in a big city. The show follows Arnold Shortman, a football headed kid who lives in a boarding house run by his eclectic radical grandmother and wise and cantankerous old grandfather. They're both really smart in their own ways. Actually, it's not fair that I just called him wise. I'm just reading off a script. I know you're like, he has a script. Holy. 
Yeah, I do. But the boarding house, the city, and Arnold's school, there's filled with all these different kinds of characters. They're all really interesting. Uh, people who come off as like one dimensional, two dimensional caricatures, um, like Mr. Wynn, who is an older Vietnamese man. Um, you know, he's just kind of sold as like this like super boring, um, obsessive character who turns out he's actually a Vietnamese refugee who fled the country in the middle of one of the many invasions of Vietnam by imperialistic powers and, you know, sacrificed his own freedom for the sake of his daughter, uh, involves the chocolate kid who eats a lot of chocolate, but you actually find out he's actually struggling with a real addiction. Uh, there's a stoop kid who's afraid to leave a stoop. Um, who we find out is has dreams and aspirations and isn't just this bully that protects his stoop arbitrarily, but the stoop is represents his entire life. So there's a lot of these characters who may seem, you know, as if they were one-off characters that this show really dives deeply into. And it covers Arnold's adventures specifically, but it does get into the other characters in the boarding house, in the school that he goes to, and generally in the city. Yeah, so I also want to talk about Gerald, who's one of my favorite characters in the show. I love Gerald. The reality is Gerald is kind of a magical Negro character. So for people who aren't familiar, magical Negro characters are characters created by white people to essentially serve as the guide, the the sage, the wise person for a white character, always there to advise and support them and have a little story of their own. Obviously, Gerald, if you are a fan of the show, you know that Gerald does have quite of a backstory and the show does do a good job of just not making him that character, but he does easily come off as part of that archetype. And that's why I wish the show was really about Gerald instead of Arnold. But I understand Arnold is also a wonderful character, too. He's also one of my favorite white people. and He's not even a real person, as far as I know. And Arnold, his role is essentially that of problem solver arguably a community organizer who's always looking out for the best interest of his friends, his family, his classmates, his neighbors. He's just a truly caring person. And I remember being a kid, just wanting to be a lot like him. Um, so I just, I have a deep love for Arnold, despite the fact that he shouldn't be the main character. So this episode begins with a neighborhood baseball game. Remember baseball? The worst sport ever. Remember that? That was cool, I guess. Uh, so Arnold is up at bat and about to strike out. He's nervous, you know, he's getting taunted by the pitcher. A schoolyard bully named Harold. Harold is pretty dope, too, as a character. He has such a deep backstory. I love the backstory on these characters. But anyway, we don't have all that backstory about Harold yet. We'll get there eventually. He's cool, though, but he's kind of a he's not a great person here. Should I curse on the show? I don't know. Um, he's not great. So Arnold hits hard and finally, you know, gets the ball going and sends the ball straight into the face of Harold. So Harold is mad. He's enraged and he's getting ready to clobber Arnold. But luckily, it's stopped by Helga G. Pataki, the other schoolyard bully, arguably, well, at this point, who is secretly in love with Arnold. Um, she protects Arnold, but hides her protectiveness, basically being like, don't hurt him. You should give him 24 hours before you beat him. 
how good it sounds. Nothing like that. How good be like, I'm not going to do it. Um, so she gives him a chance, right? Uh, so Hal is like, yeah, you're right. That's a much more efficient form of bullying. Yeah, totally. I'm going to give him 24 hours. So Arnold is bugging out. He goes home. He's shaking. And everywhere he goes, people are reminding him that he has 24 hours to live. From Helga, his future wife. Just kidding. To the radio DJ on his alarm clock who awakens him from his dream. And that night he has a dream about being hunted like King Kong across the city. When at the end of the dream, he has a sudden realization. And, you know, then he's woken up by the alarm clock DJ guy who's like, this one goes out to Arnold, who's going to die in two hours, six minutes and 47 seconds from Helga, who hates you. So Arnold is shook when he wakes up, but he has an idea that he got from his dream. So he grabs his boombox and heads downstairs to the location of the fight outside. The neighborhood kids are all out and excited for some blood like normal kids would be. And Harold is prepared to beat Arnold into social death when suddenly Arnold just starts bugging out and claims that he's, you know, quote unquote crazy. And surely Harold wouldn't dare fight a crazy person, would he? So Arnold starts bouncing around, dancing, screaming, screaming, don't hit me. I'll hit me. So the kids go wild and love his performance and every attempt that Harold makes to hit Arnold and start a formal fight is met with like another dance move or some sort of outmaneuvering of Harold. So Harold eventually gives up and ends up inviting Arnold to join his friends and be cool too. The crowd goes wild. They continue to cheer Arnold on and essentially embrace Arnold as the victor of the fight that never happened. This episode, I want to focus on another aspect of nonviolent action, which I'm primarily focused on at this point, though I'll bounce back and forth a little bit because there are some issues with nonviolence that I will address um, topic by topic, but eventually overall, too. I do like nonviolence for a lot of reasons, especially in this current moment. Anyway, I'm talking about dilemma actions. So I learned this primarily through the lens of Martin Luther King Jr. and his concept of the dramatic crisis as a means of organizing. But I'm going to be borrowing a lot more heavily from the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies, also known as Canvas, a movement training organization that was built by organizers in Serbia after they overthrew their dictator, uh, dictator Slobodan Milosevic in the 90s. So the organization has done a lot to train organizers all over the world. And that's a lot of great tools online that you should check out. And I will say there are some critiques of its leadership. Primarily, one of their leaders has been accused of sharing information with Stratfor, which is a privatized intelligence agency, which is a scary concept. A dilemma action is a protest that aims to grow the movement or the revolution. Same thing often, hopefully. By putting the movement's opposition or the regime that they are targeting in a difficult situation in which any choice that the regime makes will move the public closer to the side of the revolution. So a dilemma action must be a public action or an action that becomes public through the spread uh, of the action across the Internet or some other form of communication. But we're talking about the Internet nowadays. 
These actions defy the regime openly by breaking the law or some form of common practice. They often also seek to directly address a problem itself in defiance of a law. Like, for example, um, there was a ban a couple of years ago, and I think they still stand across cities in which people were not allowed to provide food for people outdoors, particularly people living on the street, people forced on the street by our system that's unable to provide housing for people. Just want to say. Um, so these laws were really passed to shut down Occupy Wall Street and other potential movements or, you know, just to screw over the lives of people that the system is already hurting. Um, so what a lot of people did was actually give food out to people regardless. So it was both defying the law and also providing a direct solution to the problem, which is just hungry people. Um, so dilemma action seeks to openly defy the law and openly defy the regime that it is targeting and trying to overthrow. And for it to be dilemma action, it must force the regime to make a decision that presents them with two basic choices. The regime must either give into the movement's demands or allow the movement to continue to do something that is in open opposition to the regime. Or the regime has to shut down the dilemma action, which is often a public, sometimes a, a dramatic, sometimes a silly action. So the regime is forced to either give in and allow this action to continue or shut down the action and lose public support and damage its own public image by arresting protest leaders who were just feeding people. So these actions also, they can involve smaller amounts of people than a lot of other actions. It can be really useful early on or in the middle of a lull to motivate other people into action since you often don't need a lot of people. Um, but a good dilemma action puts a regime into a, between a rock and a hard place where they either have to allow you to continue functioning and defying them openly, or they arrest you for, for, you know, defying them in a way that isn't that scary to a lot of people or uh, in a way that a lot of people will support and be like, why did you arrest those people for feeding people? What is wrong with you? We should overthrow you and capitalism. So within the show, Harold essentially plays the role of the violent regime that seeks to crush the revolution. Much like real regimes, Harold is clearly stronger than Arnold, can destroy Arnold if he really wants to, especially in a one-on-one, one-for-one military conflict in which they're playing by the same exact rules. Arnold knows this, and all the kids know that too. Helga knows it. That's why she tried to save him. So instead, Arnold creates a dilemma action by pretending that he's lost his mind. It even explicitly names this when he proclaims to Harold that you wouldn't dare hit a crazy person, would you? And the crowd loves Arnold's antics because he's being silly, he's dancing, he's bringing music to it, and really does something really unexpected. And they, yeah, they love it. And the crowd essentially begins to be won over to his side. And Harold, at a certain point, realizes this and gives up. And, you know, realizes that in, instead of losing public support, he can actually join Arnold or get Arnold to join him and give up. So Harold effectively loses the fight and Arnold wins. And Harold is so scared by it that he's like, Arnold, please join. But also, I mean, Harold is still a kid and not an evil regime. 
So Harold also genuinely probably wants to hang out with Arnold, unlike cops who hate you because their job is to protect the system. So the most common historical example I've seen and heard about, read about for this is Gandhi's Salt March, which very much helped popularize this concept for a lot of people, including Martin Luther King. So while under British colonialism, India's salt was under the exclusive control of the British Empire. They had control of all the salt. They're like, if you all make salt, it's our salt. It's our shit. So as a means of defying the British, Gandhi basically marched across the country with a lot of his followers, slowly increasing in size over time, and marched to the sea and began to produce salt by capturing seawater. And that really put the British in a tricky situation because they're like, so there's dudes just collecting salt from the seawater. He's not really stealing the seawater. I mean, the salt, uh, you're not stealing anything. We could arrest him, but... People might get mad for arresting him. And they're like, why are you arresting him? He's just being innocent. He's getting salt water. It's not a big deal. So we can't be, we're, we're in a dilemma. Like he did some kind of like dilemma action. It's weird. Um, but they can't also just let him do that because he's essentially just, he's breaking the law in their face and also building a movement while breaking the law. So the British ended up allowing him actually to to do this um they didn't want the struggle of what would happen so while that actually didn't win any immediate victories it allowed the movement to grow particularly among the hindu population of india and trained a lot of newcomers in the practice of nonviolent struggle the british when given those two choices they went the way that of you know of non-opposition allowed gandhi to do what he wanted to and defy the British openly, which inspired a lot of people and showed a lot of people. Yeah. The British are not all powerful. A more recent example would be the occupation of the Sanford police station entrance way by a group of black and Brown young people who would eventually become the dream defenders. They might've been the dream defenders at that point. I know that was decided on like a phone call, which was cool. I love the story of that. But many people forget that George Zimmerman, the man who's still free today, I won't say anything else that I want to, despite murdering Trayvon Martin, people forget that it took quite a long time for his proper arrest, I think about two months, for him to actually be uh, more formally arrested. He was arrested immediately after, but pretty much also immediately released. And one of the major sparks leading to the arrest was a brilliant dilemma action by the Dream Defenders. Much like Gandhi, they marched across the state of Florida to Sanford, Florida, and with hoodies on and arms locked, they blocked the entranceway of the Sanford police station. They demanded that either they be arrested, these people, who many of them look just like Trayvon, or that Trayvon's killer be arrested. That you arrest these young people for fighting for justice, or you arrest this man who murdered a child. The police being put in a dilemma in which they would either have to allow the occupation to continue, 
or arrest a bunch of students for protesting the lack of an arrest of an actual murderer, decided to allow the students to remain there and continue to garner media attention. After some conversations, the protests dispersed, but the damage to the system was done. Protests continued to spread and spread all over the country within the next week, and the Dream Defenders grew in size, getting to the point that they were able to actually occupy the entirety of the uh, the Florida State House for for an entire month. Dilemma actions are really important for nonviolent resistance, particularly for anyone that's trying to build some public support, which if you're building a revolution, public support is essential. Uh, even if you're leading a military coup, which we'll talk about that too, you're going to need some form of public support. And please, please no one lead a military coup. That would suck so much. Oh man, that would suck. Um, <laughs> November's going to be tricky. Uh, yeah, public support is going to be important. Obviously, you don't need to win all over the public you don't, or the, the entirety of the public, but building public support is an essential part of winning a revolution. I think the lot of actions are really important right now, especially given the phase of the movement that we're in where... The street protests are still happening. There's a lot of great organizing going on and a lot of education and training going on, which I think is what we should be doing a lot more of. But dilemma actions can help return some of the energy and bring back a lot of the public that isn't being absorbed into those trainings or local organizing efforts. Dilemma actions can really force the hand of uh, public officials and regimes and put them in dire situations in which no matter what they do, the revolution will be stronger. The movement will grow. The public will, will be outraged or happy and inspired. So I really want to encourage people to start considering what kind of public officials would make good targets right now, what kind of uh, CEOs would make great targets right now in terms of building public support, and what kind of dilemma actions would force our current capitalist regime to make choices it doesn't want to. I'm going to be sharing some tips on dilemma actions from Canvas in the Facebook group. This is the revolution. Ms. Grokey's alumni, Local 420. Ms. Grokey is a teacher from Recess, one of the dopest characters ever. So join that group, get some tips. It'll be cool. Um, yeah, that's all. Special thanks to Athena and Karen, the two largest contributors to the show. I really appreciate y'all. And thanks to everyone out there that's joining and building movements right now. This show wouldn't exist without you. I love y'all. And thank you to my family. Y'all are kind of cool. Thanks for listening to the show. The nonprofit industry should probably pay its workers more considering it's funded by some of the wealthiest people on the planet. It's almost like social movements aren't being taken seriously. But also, maybe social movement activists should build socialist organizations instead of working for nonprofits. Damn. Damn. It's not that deep, but it is. <laughs>